Good morning again and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We're very happy to be with you here today. Now, last Sunday we started the book of Genesis, focusing on the creation account in chapters 1 and 2. And chapters 1 and 2 emphasize three big themes in particular. Number one, that God created the world. The main point of Genesis 1 isn't when the world it was created. It isn't even how it was created. What matters most from Genesis 1 is that you know who created it. Our world didn't come about randomly, and it hasn't always been here. The eternal God of the Bible spoke our world into existence. And then big theme number two was that mankind is different from everything else that God created. Male and female are both created in God's image, which sets us apart from all the other good things that God made. We're given this privilege of stewarding God's creation, reflecting his image in our world, and being in harmonious relationship with him, with each other, and with creation itself. And then finally, big theme number three is that even though male and female are both created in God's image... That doesn't change the fact that we are different from each other. Adam came from the dust, and Eve came from Adam's rib. Adam and Eve are very different, but in a beautiful and complementary way. They were literally made for each other, and are brought together as one flesh in the covenant of marriage. Those are the biggest lessons to learn from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the truth is that if we miss the mark on these ideas, we can hardly claim to have a biblical understanding or a biblical answer to the big questions of life. Questions about who we are or where we came from or why we're here. But then as we closed last week, we paid special attention to Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. In that verse, Adam and Eve are unashamed to stand naked before God, before each other, and before the world. And at that point, why would they be? They have nothing to hide. They're innocent, they're pure, and unstained. However, sadly, this blissful existence wouldn't remain forever. Something would go terribly wrong. So if you ever sat back and looked at this world and thought to yourself, you know, it just seems like things should be different. It just seems like something is off. Well, you're right. So why is it that our troubled world is so unlike the paradise that was the Garden of Eden? Well, Genesis chapter 3 gives us the answer. So open up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for all the people gathered here. Uh, We come from different areas. We come from different neighborhoods, different walks of life. We have so many things that separate us, and yet one thing we have in common is that we worship you, and we gather here to learn more about you, to read from your word, and to glorify you. 
And so, Father, even though we are so different in so many ways, I pray that you would help us be united in our love for you and in our love for each other. And, Father, be with us as we read your word this morning. I pray that it would offer us answers, if maybe we're looking for answers, that it would offer us reassurance, if maybe we're struggling with doubt or questions. And, Father, I pray that whatever it is that we come here with, whatever baggage we bring, I pray that you would give us open hearts and open minds and open ears to hear the truth of your word. Thank you for Christ who died for us. Thank you for your spirit who indwells us. Thank you for this word that we read. And thank you for this church where we gather. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we begin chapter three, it's good to revisit just a few verses that we read last week. And so we start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. We read there. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then we jump forward to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have one garden, two people. Lots of regular trees and two special trees. These two special trees are known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. God expressly forbids eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But interestingly, God says nothing about the tree of life, at least not yet. But God's warning to Adam and Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could not be more clear. You eat, you die. It's that simple. And that, of course, brings us to chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the fruit in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So everything is going swimmingly at this point. But then along comes a serpent, 
speaking directly to Eve. Now, who is this serpent? Well, while he's not referred to as Satan in Genesis chapter 3, later scripture tells us that that's exactly who this serpent is. The serpent confronts Eve for one purpose and one purpose alone. Temptation to sin. Rebellion against God. And even though the serpent is speaking directly to Eve, he uses the plural form of the word you. The way you would say you when you're talking to a group of people. In other words, even though the serpent is mainly focused on Eve, there's someone else with her as well. Now, as Satan attempts to draw Eve into sin, as he tempts her to disobey God, he employs several different strategies. Strategy number one is seen in verse one. Satan exaggerates God's command. God never said that Adam and Eve couldn't eat from any tree. He said they couldn't eat from one tree. But by exaggerating God's command, Satan is attempting to make God sound cruel and withholding, as if he's somehow going to let them starve. And unfortunately, to some extent, Eve takes the bait. When she responds to Satan's first question, Eve exaggerates as well. She says that God told them not to touch the fruit, even though we haven't seen that anywhere in the book of Genesis. So attempt number one, strategy number one, exaggerate God's command. Strategy number two, seen in verse four, is that Satan explicitly contradicts God. God's warning to Adam and Eve could not have been more clear. You eat, you die. But Satan has the audacity to suggest that God isn't just being cruel. He's not just being withholding. He's outright lying. He's just trying to scare you. So slowly but surely, very patiently, Satan is planting seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. And then strategy number three, seen in verse five, is that Satan misrepresents God's character. In reality, God loves Adam and Eve. He brought them into existence, gave them a wonderful world to live in, gave them a meaningful calling to pursue. God has given Adam and Eve everything they need to flourish. If they want to know whether or not God loves them, all they have to do is look around. But Satan speaks of God, not as loving, not as kind, not as powerful. But Satan speaks of God as an insecure tyrant, hogging all the knowledge and power and glory for himself. So in the end, Satan convinces Eve to eat by saying that if she eats, she'll become like God. In other words, she won't have to play by his rules anymore. The only person she'll have to answer to is herself. She can be a truly independent woman. And so with just one bite, the good world that God created is turned on its head. The innocence and purity seen in Genesis chapter 2, 25, it's lost.
For the very first time, mankind feels guilt and shame. For the very first time, Eve actually has something to hide. But before we move forward in the passage, a few observations to consider from verses 1 through 7. Observation number one is that when it comes to tempting people into sin, to this very day, Satan can still use the tried and true methods that worked so well in the Garden of Eden. Satan may not come to you in the form of a talking snake, but don't be fooled. Satan is still up to no good. And in fact, when Satan is a little less obvious, that makes him that much more dangerous. So Satan may tell you that God's commands are harsh and oppressive rather than gracious and life-giving. He may directly contradict God's word, suggesting that God can't actually be trusted. Or he may attack God's character, presenting him as a selfish dictator rather than a loving creator. So be on your guard. If Satan tried to tempt Adam and Eve, he'll try to tempt you as well. But then another observation from verse 6. Why do you think Eve really ate that fruit? Did she eat it because it was good for food? I don't think so. There were plenty of other trees in the garden that were good for food. That didn't make this tree unique. Was it because it was a delight to the eyes? No. That's true of all the other trees as well. So the core reason that Eve ate that fruit was that it was to be desired to make one wise. The core reason that Eve ate was because she wanted to be out from under God's thumb. And I'd argue that a desire for independence from God shapes just about all of the sin that we read about in Scripture. Just about all of the sin that we see in our world. And just about all of the sin that we see in our own lives today. And then observation number three, that we almost forgot. Eve wasn't alone. Adam was with her the entire time. Throughout the whole conversation between Eve and Satan, Adam never once spoke up. He never challenged Satan's claims. He never tried to talk Eve out of eating. The truth is that Adam was a coward, and he's just as guilty as Eve. So we've seen three people at this point. We've seen Satan, we've seen Eve, and we've seen Adam. But there's one person who hasn't made an appearance yet, and he's kind of important in the book of Genesis. And that, of course, is God, starting in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, 
She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God enters the scene. And this image of God walking in the garden shows the closeness that Adam and Eve were originally intended to have with God. But when they hear God, instead of greeting him, instead of welcoming him, Adam and Eve do the opposite. After they attempt to hide their nakedness with leaves, they jump behind a few trees to try and hide from God. God then asks them several questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? And then maybe the most chilling question of all. What have you done? Now, truthfully, God already knows the answers to all of these questions. He's God. However, this is Adam and Eve's chance to own up to their sin. This is their chance to throw themselves onto God's mercy, to confess. But Adam and Eve don't do that. Instead, they attempt to explain themselves. They try to justify their actions. They search for excuses. If you ever wonder how you got so good at that, Adam and Eve, we learned it from them. Adam blames Eve directly and God indirectly. He essentially says, you know, God, it was her idea. And I should also point out that you're the one who put her here anyway. Just saying. Eve does a little bit better. At least she admits that she was deceived. But the big question, of course, is what will God do now? Back in chapter two, he said that they would die if they ate the fruit. But Adam and Eve are still alive and kicking. So was Satan right? Was God really just bluffing the whole time? Well, sadly, in a sense, Adam and Eve have already died. They're not the same people they were before. And there will be grave consequences for what they've done. We see that in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Sorry, Kelly. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. At this point, Kelly's ready for the pain. Just get it over with. Verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. 
and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So the consequences for Satan, humiliation, and eventually defeat once and for all. The consequences for Eve, pain and childbearing, and discord with Adam. And the consequences for Adam, the task of subduing creation will be a burden rather than a joy. And Adam will one day return to the dust. The consequences are severe. Satan will regret the day that he entered that garden. And instead of unity for Adam and Eve, they'll experience tension with each other. Instead of joyfully ruling over creation together, they will attempt to rule over each other. And their work will often be tiresome and unrewarding. However, even in the curses, from the very beginning of the Bible, from the very verse sin recorded in Scripture, we still see God's grace. How do we see it? Well, first of all, he doesn't kill Adam and Eve like he had every right to do. On top of that, instead of leaving them for dead, he clothes them. Even in their rebellion, he still provides for Adam and Eve. And then, of course, in verse 15, he promises deliverance. That verse we read several times at Christmas. It's often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, a fancy word for the first good news. Genesis 3.15. But there's still one more showing of God's grace in Genesis 3 that often gets overlooked. And we see it as we wrap up the passage in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Lots of people know how Genesis 3 ends. That may be nothing new. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But if you look closely, they aren't kicked out just as a form of punishment, though that's certainly part of it. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden for their own protection. Remember that other special tree, that lesser-known tree of life. Apparently, if Adam and Eve eat from it now, they will be stuck forever in this state of sin and rebellion, with no hope of redemption or reconciliation with God. So for their own good, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden forever. Or at least it seems like forever. But then turn to the other side of your Bible. Genesis is the first book, but turn to Revelation, the last book. Specifically, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. There's a verse in there that's easy to overlook. Easy to just 
gloss right over it. But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, we read this. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Apparently, sometime between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, something has changed. All of a sudden, there's talk of the tree of life being accessible again. All of a sudden, the paradise of God is no longer off limits. And at the very end of Revelation, there's this promise that someday sinners will once again walk in God's presence. In that place, the leaves of the tree will be for healing, not hiding. Instead of punishment, there will be reward. Instead of curses, there will be blessings. Someday, the paradise of God will be seen again in all of its beauty, all of its glory, all of its goodness, but even better than before. But how do we get there? How is this possible? What has changed so drastically along the way? We'll go back to Genesis 3.15, that first good news. What's changed between Genesis and Revelation is that that first good news has been accomplished. And it's been accomplished through Christ. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Paul says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, referring to Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Through one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, sinners like Adam and Eve and sinners like you and me can once again be made righteous. We can be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled. So from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, we see the plan of God at work. At times it seems obscure and confusing. It often seems to move forward at a snail's pace or even stall entirely. But in God's good timing, his plan to bring sinful man back to his presence was accomplished through Christ, the one righteous man. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, you have reason to rejoice 
even while you live in a still fallen world. A world that often makes you mourn. Because the one who conquers through the blood of Jesus has God's presence and the tree of life and paradise to look forward to. So press on. Or perhaps you're here, not a follower of Christ, but fully aware of your sin. You've done all the same things that Adam and Eve did. You've tried to hide your sin from God and from others. You've made excuses and justifications. You've blamed every single person but yourself. If that's you, come out from hiding. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross of Christ, the one who took your curse upon himself. Repent of your sin and come back into the presence of God, where God will welcome you. And let God clothe you in new white robes, robes that were purchased for you on the cross. If you look back a few verses, that verse where God clothes Adam and Eve, where he makes loincloths for them out of skin to replace their old clothes made of leaves. It's sometimes been observed that it's ironic that when God makes clothes for Adam and Eve before he kicks them out of the garden, he uses skins to do it specifically. In other words, something had to die for Adam and Eve to have those clothes. And while those clothes may have been better than leaves, They weren't enough to hide Adam and Eve's sin. They could cover their bodies, but they couldn't cover their rebellion. But when Christ died, we are given new clothes. Clothes that cover up our sin, cover up our rebellion. That we might be worthy once again to walk in the presence of God. So as always, we say it every single Sunday here at Prairie View. If you don't know who Christ is, if you don't know what Christ has done for you, if you look in the mirror and you see how messed up you are, you see how far you've fallen and you don't know where else to turn, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ today and be forgiven and reconciled to your creator. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the scripture that we read that many of us are familiar with on some basic level. Most of us probably know the bare outline of the story. We may even know some of the finer details. And just looking at Genesis 3, it can be a little bit sobering and even depressing to see the fall of Adam and Eve and see how we ourselves have fallen. That we ourselves have our own guilt and our own sin to deal with too. But Father, again, even in this dark chapter where everything seems to go wrong, we see your grace and we see your kindness shine through. Thank you that from the very beginning, you are gracious and you are good to us, far better to us than we deserve. So, Father, as we come here every Sunday and bring our sins along with us and bring our baggage and bring our failures and our problems, 
Thank you that you welcome us into your presence. That you love us, you care for us, you provide for us. Most of all, by sending your son to the cross for us. Thank you that as we sit here this morning, we can read your word and see the first good news of Genesis 3.15. But also celebrate the wonderful news of the gospel. Thank you that Christ was born and lived and died and rose and ascended. And Father, thank you that Christ will one day return and that we look forward to being with you in paradise. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.